0: welcome you into another edition of Talking Isles, the New York Islanders official interview-based podcast. I'm Greg Picker, the radio color commentator for the team, joined alongside by the director of digital, Corey Wright. And Corey, we go back to expansion year 1972. The original captain of the New York Islanders, Eddie Westfall, joins us.
1: Ed Westfall, what a character. A real pleasure to talk to him. Just getting some great stories about the 1970s New York Islanders. And Greg, you and I know that Nineteen seventies hockey was a completely different world from today. We're talking about no helmets, we're talking about smoking in locker rooms, commercial travel, just got some really fun stories about some of those old personalities from the nineteen seventies as well. Ed Westfall used to fly a plane. I mean, we really covered a lot of ground here and I mean, he's got some great stories, so highly recommend sticking around for the entire hour here. I think we probably could have gone even a couple more hours
0: with Ed Westfall. What a tremendous storyteller, and boy, does he have stories considering he won a, a couple Stanley Cups with the Boston Bruins and then was not only a player for the Islanders from 72 to 1979, but a broadcaster for the team for the better part of two decades and has really ingrained himself in the Long Island community over the years. And we will take it away with Ed Westfall
2: crossing the far side to Druin, up to Westfall at center, Westfall across the Flyers line, drops it off for Billy Harris, on the left to Dennis Potman, shot, Westfall, Westfall on the goal, Murat arguing that puck did not cross the goal line, but the light went on and Dave Newell's right arm went up and it went up
1: and out of this,
0: well they did on the second five. Welcome in Ed Westphal, the original captain of the New York Islanders back in 1972. And Ed, can you take us back to the expansion draft? And when you found out that you were moving on from Stanley (laughs) Cup champion Boston Bruins to the New York (laughs) Islanders. I found out from a customs and
2: immigration officer uh, coming back from a trip with my parents. uh, The customs and immigration officer said, Ed, will never forgive them. He assumed I already knew, but I didn't my kids were standing behind
1: a glass window crying. <laughs> and that was at Logan airport, right? You were coming, where were you coming yeah, back from? I, and just, you know? yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, my mother's from, from Scotland. So we were over in England, Scotland and Ireland. And I guess that was right after we'd won the cup. And I guess in May uh, we won the cup and then by the end of June, I was gone. So I, I found out, as I say, with, with the customs at Boston uh, Logan Airport.
1: You know, take us back then to that first training camp, because, you know, we've read some stories about just how dysfunctional might be the wrong word, but it just seemed like it was very <laughs> no, chaotic no, in that first year. And, you know, you're coming uh, from the Boston It's That's room. not a bad word, no, 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 because,
2: uh, you know, most of the players didn't have much, well, first of all, NHL experience. I think there were 11 players the Islanders lost to the World Hockey that year. That was their initial year as well. And uh, along with the draft thing and the players jumping to the World Hockey, I think the Islanders lost lost 11. But you you didn't know each other. There was only two or three of us that knew uh, each other at training camp. And uh, Phil Goyette was our first coach, and it was his first year as a coach. So I played against Phil, of course, for years as a uh, Montreal Canadian and a New York Ranger. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a little uh, different. Uh, we just uh, we just went out, did the exercises, did the best we could, played the exhibition games like all teams do. But uh, you could tell that uh, you know coming from a Stanley Cup champion that you'd been 11 years on that team and seeing how it was organized and how everything had, you know, had unfolded. Uh, it was different. Like I couldn't agree more.
0: <laughs> how quickly did you know that you were going to become captain of the team? Did that happen right at the start of training camp or did that happen even earlier in the summer after the expansion draft occurred?
2: No, it happened. Uh, it happened, uh, when I was introduced, Bill Torrey uh, mentioned to me and he asked me if I would accept being the captain of the team. And, uh, and yes, uh, that was at my introduction as after we'd had talked a little bit, um, Roy Bo was the owner and he was active in, in any discussions we had as well. And and so I got a nice feeling with uh, with Bill Torrey and with Roy Bow about coming here and helping start a brand new franchise. So yeah, after a while, it kind of started to settle in. After you got through your personal snit you know you've been abandoned by the team you've worked with for 11 years so
1: anyway yeah then then we got settled in and did the best we could well, I know that first win, you guys did not win a lot of games, but one of the highlights of that season was beating the Boston Bruins. And I would imagine for you as a player, you know, returning to Boston for a game like that, that one had to have been pretty special. So what do you remember about, I believe it was a, a 9-7 win over the Bruins in that first year?
2: Yep. Yeah. That's that's correct. Uh I think at the end of the first period we were leading 6 to nothing and and you couldn't figure out what's going on here. You know, they're taking a night off or something but we went along and did the best we could. And I just knew that you know sooner or later the you know the the ball was going to drop on us if so we could maybe run out the clock. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was interesting because Each time uh, for the first year that I went back to Boston, the fans there were absolutely incredible. I got a standing ovation my first time out on the ice every night. And I remember when Don Cherry was the coach, he hated that. He didn't like anybody getting more attention than he did. (laughs) And he he used to send Stan Jonathan out to intimidate me or roll me over or put me up in the seats or whatever. And one night um, I I hit Stan Jonathan right in front of the Bruins bench and he couldn't get up. He, he was laying on the ice, wind knocked out. And I turned, it was right in front of the bench. And I said to Don Cherry, hey, your hit man, he's down there on the ice, he's not doing so good. Why don't you come out here and try it or I'll come in there. (laughs) And of course, he jumps up on the seat in his loud outfit and he's screaming and yelling. And and I said, hey, Don, you see all these guys sitting right here? I said, they're all friends of mine and none of them like you. (laughs) So it made him rant and rave a little bit more anyway. It was fun, but yeah, that was, uh, that was an incredible, uh, opening season game. Well, it wasn't the first game of the year, but
0: yeah. To so think- sum up how big of an upset that was. The Islanders record going into that game was four 37 and four. The Bruins were defending Stanley cup champions, 28, 10 and four. And you spoiled quite the night for Johnny Busick because he scored four goals in that game. One of only two times in his career, he had a four goal performance Out of 1,540 games. So to spoil that kind of night, too, must have felt pretty good. Well, well, he he made a deal with me, you see.
2: (laughs) He had a bonus. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I said, you always have to talk to the goaltender when it comes to that. But, yeah, I guess, well, Johnny Busick could score. You know, he was was an artist at it. And uh, he showed it all the years I played with him.
0: How about just even in that first year at the fan growth? Because we know for the most part, it wasn't until 1975 in the playoff series, win when the fan growth really started to ramp up about, how about from game one against the Atlanta flames or even the preseason until the end of that year where you only won 12 games total, but did you really see the team taking a hold on Long Island and in the community that early, or was it really the three years until the playoffs? No, no, absolutely. All the people that couldn't get tickets at the Ranger games,
2: they, they've now had an NHL team to cheer for. And uh, I, I, with all the statistics, one of the statistics that, that um, people don't give you in situations like we're in, and maybe you have the statistics as to what, what the crowds were like and how many there were at the games. One thing I always felt very proud about the Nets basketball team was a championship team and we outdrew them by a mile. And and that was of course, later on a little bit of a test for uh, some of the owners of the Nets and some of the owners of the Islanders and some own both. But having said that, I I always thought that a lot of people got the wrong impression about the fact that the fans weren't showing up, and I thought they were I thought we were doing quite well, and of course we were we were miserable in the wind column, but a lot of people felt that you know they had their own hockey team now and uh and and they started to go to the games and and they didn't expect a lot. The players expected more of themselves than the fans expected of the players. Because they knew we were a brand new team and they knew hockey fans know. And uh, they they their expectations weren't that we were going to win more games than we were going to lose. And then you mentioned 75. Yeah, that was when things started to turn around. And if you go back, of course, uh, poor Phil Goethe. I always felt bad for him. But uh, they brought Al Arbor in and I knew Al. I played against him and he was a very organized guy he, his whole life has been had been organized and he organized practices and we used to joke with him we could we could go out on the ice with a blindfold on and just by the way he blew the whistle we knew what we were supposed to do so he had ingrained all that so that's that was all a system that that worked its way into the minds of the players and and it gave us a lot of results
1: well, you know, you were one of the big headliners from the Islanders expansion draft that year. But, of course, uh, you know, the Islanders also had the first pick in the amateur draft and Billy Harris gets selected. I know the two of you have been very close for a long time, but maybe take us back to, you know, the early days of you and Billy and just kind of your relationship when you two were both arriving on Long Island in 1972. Yeah, no, we've had uh, we've had a wonderful relationship even today.
2: I'll, I'll see him when uh uh, in another couple of weeks, down in Florida. Yeah, I just you know here's another case where you know a young player coming in. Now he's used to being a winner and being a star in a league and on a team, obviously. And then he comes he comes to the Islanders, and instead of getting help to make him improve as he goes along and and uh, and help his game become the game that it ultimately did, but he didn't get the early help that that a lot of players get. He was the guy they were looking upon to score the goals and make the plays and do all the things that that on other teams he wouldn't be called upon to do that. But yeah, he survived it all because he had a big heart and he worked hard and he was a fun guy. He was great in the dressing room, even from the beginning. The players all really enjoyed him. And of course, if you think about it's it where he played. He played at a level higher than most. Uh, as a rookie and then in his second and third year he really started to take off because we started the team started to gain some better players and and uh, he benefited by it
0: you mentioned your fellow tenants at the coliseum in those days in the nets who were playing in the aba also owned by roy bow did you as a team have relationship with those players at all and especially we have to ask about dr J. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well yeah we knew each other you know the fact i i had been through the same thing in boston the uh, the celtics and the bruins practiced in the same rink and some of the owners of the bruins uh, were owners of the of the celtics so i had seen this before christmas parties together and things like that but uh, yeah we got to, uh, we got to meet and, and be around some of the uh, some of the basketball guys uh, obviously because you know, we're not usually playing at, at the same time. One would be in town, one would be out of town. But yes, we did. We got to meet some of the fellas and and uh, it was fun to meet them. And, and they enjoyed us. I mean, um, I think there's always been some fun about the fact that we're playing in the same kind of a building. They're playing on a covered up ice rink and <laughs> some nights we look like we should have been on the basketball court. But anyway, yeah, it was good. It was fun. I think that was probably a a bit of a downfall for, you know, for for the basketball team and and Roy Bow was because of the mix of the ownerships and uh, and so on, as I alluded to earlier. Then, of course, they sold Dr. J, I think, for a million dollars to Philadelphia, if I remember correctly.
1: We had the pleasure a long time ago to get to have Clark Gillies on the podcast. And obviously we miss him dearly, but he told the story. We asked him how he got the nickname Jethro and he said that was your doing. <laughs> so can you maybe give us that story from your perspective and, you know, just talk about your relationship with Clark as well?
2: Well, one of the things that I learned as a young fellow with the Bruins was that even though you were, when you became a Bruin in this case, you know, you took somebody's place who was a friend of a lot of the teammates, but... But that they never held that against a young fella coming onto the team. And I was always treated uh, very nicely by the senior players when I became an NHL player in Boston. And so I always thought that that was kind of a nice way to handle young players coming coming into uh, the league or into a team or even if they were traded. And so when, when I rented the house, I always rented one with a couple extra bedrooms in it. And that's what my idea was that you know, that I would do that. And in Clarkie's case, yeah, he came in as a kid. I mean, look at the size of him. And and he was a jolly, jolly, wonderful young man to be around. And so I said, um, you're not going into the hotel or the motel. You're going to stay with me. So he lived with me and he'd go to practice and go to the games. And and uh, and one of the ladies that I'm still very close to, and I love her to death, is is Pam, his wife. And and she was trying to hang on to her deer. They were, they were kids. They grew up together and they looked to have a future. So she'd come out from Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, and I'd say to her, okay, Pam, here's the deal. That's your room over there. And Clarky knows he's got that room over there. And I go to bed 11 o'clock and I don't know anything goes on after that. I don't know. And I don't care. And 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 so we developed all this wonderful relationship. But Clarky loved to come back, and and he got the biggest kick out of the Beverly Hillbillies. And 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 of course, I'm looking at this big hulk of a guy, and I said, Jethro, you know you got a lot in common with with the TV guy. So I'm going to call you Jethro. So that's how it really began. So uh, and it caught on, and he got a big kick out of it.
1: Well, I got to ask, because we've heard that you were generous in opening up a house to uh, younger players. So, you know, who are some of the guys who lived with them? You know, what was it like? Uh, what would it have been like for them to room with uh, uh, a hockey legend in Ed Westfall back <laughs> in
2: the day? <laughs> well, well Nolan O'Brien, Brian Brian uh, Let's see. Well, Billy Harris and I lived together the first season uh, in a house up in Huntington. Andre Saint Laurent, he lived with me. Gosh, I'm trying to remember. There was a young man that they had brought in. And he was playing for the Providence Reds, and I I uh, flew back and forth to New Hampshire as best I could. And this young fella, uh, his family was in Providence, and you know after a practice some days when we had time, I'd fly home to New Hampshire and and uh, and have dinner with my my family up there, and then fly back early the next morning. So, on knowing he was in Providence, I said, "Hey, come on, get in the plane. Call your wife. Tell her to pick you up." At the T.J. Green Airport in Providence, and I'll I'll drop you off there. But you have to be back at the airport at seven o'clock in the morning because we got practice the next morning. And I promised Al Arbor I'd never be late for practice. And all the years that I I flew, I never was. But he couldn't believe that that the captain of the team he was staying with me and and that he'd uh, he'd get a plane ride up to see his family and picked up and brought back like it was a
0: uber <laughs> now that's an unusual mode of transportation to practice uh, a plane that you would be flying back down to get there in time did you have any close calls even if you made it there on time were there any close calls <laughs> oh. no
2: well usually you try to avoid you know you get into some weather but uh, i guess ice believe it or not that we made our living on back then was one of the things that you have to be very careful about in the winter, particularly in the northeast with all the moisture around. But no, um, I was uh, pretty fortunate. I I made more good decisions than bad, I guess you'd say. That old The old adage about flying is there are old pilots and there are bold pilots, but there are no old, bold pilots. So, survived it for 35 years, so I enjoyed it. But uh, and I used to take some of the players up to my home. Uh, one of the guys that uh, that lived with me for the longest, I, uh, Craig Cameron, uh, he was from Edmonton. And, uh, and and so I'd take Brian Troche and Craig Cameron and sometimes Clark, he had four of us in the plane and take them up for supper at my house in New Hampshire and back. So <laughs> some of the guys would enjoy that. And uh, so
1: rooming with Ed got to be fun. Well, I have a few follow-up questions. I mean, we know that you've, you know, flew the plane back and forth to practice, but I guess what kind of propelled you to want to even fly planes, uh, you know? And then, <laughs> you know, did you own your own plane, or are you just kind of chartering one out for the season? Oh, I you owned know, what it, kind of plane, no. you know.
2: No, it's a Bonanza. Um, my first one was a, a Bonanza, um, four seater, very fast, two hundred miles an hour had wonderful range, and, uh, you know, I could fly, uh, I mean, a five-and-a-half-hour drive from Long Island to here up to where I lived in New Hampshire was almost six hours. I could fly it in one, so <laughs> it was very handy. My family, when I had to leave Boston, they didn't want to move. I had kids and going into college. I had kids in high school, and they had their friends and so on, so I, that's how I got into it, was a couple of my neighbors had airplanes. I used to go flying with them, so family decided to stay there. And I went and bought an airplane, learned how to fly it. <laughs> so, so I never flew as a player to a hockey game, but as a broadcaster, Jigs and I, when he and I were broadcasting together, we would fly to a lot of the places in the plane, because when the game was over, we could get in the plane and fly home. And so we did that and, you know, up to places as far as, uh, Toronto Buffalo Quebec City Montreal and that that, I think Pittsburgh once or twice we went out that far but but no it was fun it was handy and as I say I promised Al I'd never be late and I wasn't so (laughs) how was Jigs as a co-pilot no, oh, no, he was great. No, no, he didn't know anything. It was great because he didn't know anything about the plane other than he enjoyed the fact that we could get in the plane and go and come back right after the game. So yeah, the convenience of it all. And that was another thing that gave us a giggle here and there at
1: different times. Well, one more on the, on the plane here, because I think I either read the story in Sports Illustrated or maybe it was from a conversation with Billy Harris years ago. But I think during that 72 training camp in Peterborough there was a night where you guys may have stayed out a little past curfew and they had shut the runway lights off or something so the two of you are looking for the runway out of the plane is that is that a true story and boy no, that... No,
2: that's that that's just about what happened uh it was Billie Jean King she was playing in that famous tennis match Bobby Riggs and she were playing in that match and I think that was 71 it might have been 72 but anyway so we flew from Peterborough was that training camp and we flew to Toronto and there's a little island airport it's not little it's fairly good size but they have little ferries to get onto the island and off so we flew into the island and we 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 went into town and had dinner and watched the match between Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean King and of course by the time that was over and we had to get back There were no ferry services. There was nothing. And here's the airplane over there. And here we've got about 200 yards of water to cross and we don't have a boat. And so we ran up and down the shoreline and we saw some guy working on his boat. And so we gave him some money and he took us over. Now we get in the plane and the towers not open so <laughs> had a, it wasn't a really bad night so we had an idea where the runway was <laughs> we took off and when we got to peterborough of course there's a there's a way to put the lights on by using your mic by clicking the mic so many times the lights will come on at the airport and uh and they weren't working so well, so we kept flying around over top Peterborough airport. I knew the airport was down there somewhere, and finally they came on, so we got in and landed. but that was an anxious night. We broke curfew like and 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 Al looking down now from heaven he said, <laughs> "I knew you broke curfew a few times, Westfall, but yeah, that was uh, one of the uh That was one and another one out of London when I went down to London to see some friends because we had training camp there as a Bruin and uh, they had, again, the tower was closed. I had to climb a fence to get down to where my plane was. I was on the other side of a chain link fence. The plane was sitting right there and, and I had to get back, back to Peterborough. And so I climbed up over the fence and the air traffic controllers, all of a sudden they see me taxiing out. And they're talking to me. Uh, plane uh, taxiing at London airport. Check in, check in. And I said, "There's no way, because if I do that, they know who I am, and, and and they they can identify me." So I taxied out, took off, and I was going over Toronto. And London traffic was still asking me, you know, to report in. That's <laughs> so that's I I I probably could go get sanctioned for that one.
0: Yeah. I don't think it would be so easy to get away with something like that in today's world, but you were obviously (laughs) known as the first captain of the Islanders. You scored the first goal in franchise history, but you were also the first all-star in Islanders history. 1973, you were named to the all-star game that was played at Madison square garden. How special is it to know that you always are the first Islander all-star, but was it also strange because you got to play with, I think, four Bruins teammates in that game. Yeah. If I
2: could turn this thing, I can show you over there on the wall. uh... A picture of uh, of the uh, Bruin guys in the All Star uniforms in the in that All Star game. That was also, or of course, he was an All Star his whole life. But, but that's the time we taped. We put tape on the bottom of his blades when he didn't realize it. And and he fell right in his fanny. You know, you get the introduction and the lights are on you, and he steps out onto the ice, you know, here's Bobby Orr and the cheers, and he fell right in his fanny. Because we had put we had put tape on this on the blades of his skates. <laughs> <Let's> have fun. <laughs> the great skater. <laughs> yeah, that was it was it was wonderful to represent the team and uh and be recognized in In that group of players, uh, yeah, four times I was lucky enough to get that to happen. And and I enjoyed every one of them. And I used to tell some of the players, I said, listen, you ought to love me. And I'm going to tell you why. Because if it wasn't for guys like me that you could skate around, beat and score goals, you'd be nothing. If you had to play against All-Stars every time you played hockey, you'd be just a regular hockey player. So you should thank me.
1: <laughs> All right, well, let's move ahead to uh, 1975. And that's obviously the big breakthrough for the Islanders beating the Rangers yeah. in three games. I mean, you know, can you just take us through what that series was like and also just kind of what getting guys like J.P. Parisi and Jude Duran really meant to that group in 75 to help, you know, kind of further further the cause. Uh, of course, in addition to guys like Danny Poppin.
2: Yeah, well, um, you know, we had we had really started and, and built on that year. That was our third year in the league, but we now had some punch, we had some confidence, and uh, and we had some depth for the first time. And and I think I'm correct when I say we won the last regular season game that year. We beat the Rangers and made the playoffs by one point. They were seeded. Uh, First, and we were, I think, at that time, sixth, and we played them in that two out of three, and of course, um, it's history now that JP um, scored that goal eleven seconds. That was a record forever and ever. Now it's been broken, but we eliminate the Rangers, and nobody could believe it, particularly the Ranger fans and the Rangers. But, but the next, the next one went. They were seeded number two, Pittsburgh. And we played them. And of course, we lost the first three. It was over. But no, we won the next three. And then we went to Pittsburgh and we won one to nothing. And nobody could believe that. I mean, that was impossible. But it happened. And there was a cute anecdote to that. As a seasoned, seasoned citizen hockey player, let's see, I'd have been, what, 35 at that point. And and I just emotionally and physically, I just sat in the dressing room and with all the guys whooping, And I sat there and I sat there and uh, we didn't have any beer in the dressing room back then. I was always mad about that. But anyway, I finally, the two trainers, um, Jimmy Pickard and Ron Waskey said, Hey, everybody's gone. There's just us three. I said, Oh my gosh. So I showered And uh, I went out the door, and the first guy I run into was Sil Apps, who we, of course, he played a wonderful player, and his wife, Ann. He said, Eddie, what are you doing? The place is empty again. I said, I don't know. Everybody left. He says, where are you going? I said, I don't know. They're all gone somewhere. I said, he said, come with us. So I went after the game and spent till five o'clock in the morning with the Pittsburgh Penguins and their wives <laughs> celebrating, I guess, that the season was over. But I always thought that was kind of unique that, that the captain ends up with the other team because he couldn't find his own. <laughs> you know, that that year, and I go back to the playoffs, of course, we, you know, we played the next best team in our division, uh, Philadelphia, and, you know, again, that, that'd be just lucky twice, but, you know, they knock us down three times. We come back up three times, and and uh, unfortunately, I think it was Gary Dornhofer. Now, he couldn't – I'd known him since he was a kid. We – in junior hockey, but, I mean, he couldn't break a thin pane of glass from four feet with his shot, but somehow he got it in behind Chico from just outside the blue light. <laughs> and of course, that was – that was a little bit setting us back, but that was also the time we had fun with uh, with Kate Smith, uh, the flowers and all that. That was, uh, and and she talked about that often in her professional career.
0: How did that come to be? What's the story that led to you presenting the flowers to her before Game Seven? Well, we'd been out
2: for the warm up, and we went in the dressing room, and somebody knocked on the door. One of the ushers from the rank or whoever, Jimmy Pickard went over to the door and the usher handed him a big bouquet of flowers. And it was for Mr. Hart. So Pick takes them over. Jerry, here's some flowers for you. He said, what? What are flowers? I said, Hardy, who'd... that's a beautiful bouquet of flowers. He said, some lady. He said, I don't even know her. I said, okay, you don't want them, right? He said, what am I going to do with them? I said, give them to me. That's how it started. I said, now you donkeys, here's what we're going to do. When we go back out, they're going to dim the lights and Kate Smith's going to sing God Bless America because Philadelphia always brings her out when they got a problem. She's their good luck charm. So we're going to try and knock that down a little bit. So I'm going to skate down and hand her the flowers and you donkeys are one at a time come right behind me and thank her for what she does for hockey. And so we did, but she said later, she was being interviewed with Merv Griffith. He used to have a show out of Philadelphia and she was on there once, I was told this. And so he said, you know, this thing with hockey, man, you're gonna, you know, everybody recognizes you, hockey, Kate Smith. She said, I gotta tell you, I don't know how this happened, but seventh game, Philadelphia's playing the New York Islanders, she says, the lights go down and all of a sudden with me is the handsome captain of the new york islanders and he's got this bouquet of flowers and each one of his teammates come by and thank me but she says most disturbing about the whole thing was how did that captain know that my favorite flower was a chrysanthemum <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but she got Caranthia and she loved Caranthimums, but uh, she said, you know, she told Murphy, she said, I almost couldn't sing. I was so taken aback that all of this was happening before I'm supposed to sing. She said, it took me a while to gather myself so I can sing the song. So that was the Kate Smith
1: story. And we lost the game. (laughs) Well, Chico... He told us a great story about, you know, when he first painted his mask, of course, he had, you know, Long Island on the front of his mask. And that wasn't really super common back then. I think he even talked about feeling, you know, maybe some misgivings before he did it, before kind of getting some good feedback from the fans. But, you know, do you have any rec- recollection of that and maybe what the attitude was towards him, you know, painting that very, iconic mask? Yeah,
2: uh, Very little. I remember when he did it, you know, it wasn't something that that goaltenders did I mean (laughs) it was was, but it was I guess part of his character you know he was when you think about it and if you thought about Chico and and his life and his family and and um he was very conscientious but he also had a side to him that he liked to have fun and yeah maybe he did it for that I don't know I never asked him and I don't know that he took a lot of heat about it but you
0: know it was different now, in 1976-77, you end up, after that season, relinquishing the captaincy to Clark Gillies. What led to that decision where you know you still had a few years left to play, but you said, okay, it's time for a new voice in the locker room?
2: Well, they needed, yeah, they needed a different identity. The players, I mean, they needed, I'm, you know, I'm near the end of my career, and these guys are just coming into the middle of theirs and Bill Tory and I talked about it and I said, yeah, I don't have a, you know, I, I think it's time. Um, so he said, well, how do you think that we should do this? Should I do like I did with you a point? Or I said, well, you've got some pretty strong candidates in that dressing room, Bill. I said, you know, maybe you ought to let the players vote on it. I never forget. We we're at racket and rink over there in North end of, uh, armingdale uh republic field and the racket and rink and so they said well we're gonna you know i'm gonna retire as a captain guys and they're gonna and they're gonna um we're gonna vote but here's what's gonna happen you guys are gonna vote and i'm gonna sit out in the seats they said well why aren't you gonna vote i said well i don't think it's right uh, that i vote being uh the retiring captain so you guys will figure it out and uh I'll wait outside. And when you're done, you can tell me. So out comes, I don't know, I guess it was Al Arbor. Somebody came out and I'm sitting out in the seats by myself. And they said, well, you got to vote. And I said, why do I have to vote? He said, because we're tied. I said, you want me to pick the captain? I said, I told you I'm not going to pick the captain. So you go back and vote again until you decide. And that's when they picked Clarkie. And uh, I guess he, you know, he didn't really feel after he had worn it for a while that, that that's what he wanted to do. He he had his own reasons for it and, and he decided not to. And then it went right away without any talk or any conversations or any votes or anything. It went right to Dennis. So whether it was the two of them that were down at the end of the vote, the beginning or not, I don't know. I felt that not, it wasn't my place. So anyway, the uh, Clarky had it. And and I think in his heart and his mind, he, he didn't want to bear the responsibility and uh, he said, I'd like to not be the captains. Nobody
1: held it against him. Well, from that point, you know, you're not wearing the senior jersey. And if you look back at your career, you know, you did not wear a helmet for your entire career. And I got to ask you, I mean, it just it's so <laughs> alien compared to, you know, the hockey that Greg and I have grown up watching that I just got to ask, you know, what's it? And you know, what was it like playing the game without a helmet back in the seventies i wouldn't I wouldn't know what it was like to wear one um i I never felt
2: I'm not a macho guy. I just never felt if the game was played correctly, you didn't need it and And what I really mean by that is when we played and nobody wore a helmet, everybody respected totally the other player. You wouldn't use your stick on somebody. Of course, it happens, but not very often. Because your own teammates in the dressing room after, if you used your stick on somebody around their head, your own teammates would be on you like you couldn't believe. You're making us look bad. That would be kind of the the thinking behind somebody going after a teammate. And, and, and we played the game differently. If, if you remember... When I started in the n h l there were people on there was a little glass on each end of the rink, and the people on the front row along the sideboards had their elbows on the boards, and there was nothing there was nothing in front of them and The game was played down here, not up there and Now you know, I don't know whether you know what we used to joke about did they did the glass keep getting higher to keep the players in? Or the fans out. yeah. <laughs> and so the game started to elevate and you know then of course the sticks started to elevate and and that made sense and Europeans when they came over after uh, the league started to expand quite a bit fairly quickly they couldn't Canada couldn't supply all the players again so they uh, so they uh, had to go to Europe and Czechoslovakia, Russia, and they all wore helmets. And so when they came into the league, the influx of Europeans and Russians, Czechs, they um, started the helmet thing. And and of course, then it became noticeable, and the league decided to make it mandatory. And I think it was Craig McTavish, if I remember correctly, he was the last he was the last player that played out his career without a helmet
0: soon enough, there will be no players left without a visor because that's been grandfathered out and there are only a handful of players left in the National Hockey League that can play without a visor. But moving on to 1979, you wrap up your playing career and not too long after that, become a broadcaster for the team. How did that conversation occur and how much fun did you have in that role for nearly two decades?
2: (laughs) Well, of the Reader's Digest version, uh, I had made... A good friend a good friendship with a Nelson Doubleday and uh, I was when I retired as a player I I moved up to Locust Valley and I met Nelson he was one of the first guys I met he was a, a wonderful sportsman and a great guy so he asked me when uh when I was I said that I was going to retire and he said well what are you going to do I said I'm, Harry Sinden wants me to come back and and take a position with him in the Boston Bruins organization. And he said no 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 you're not going back you got to stay here. So I think somehow some way Nelson went to uh, Chuck Dolan and and said well look we want back then they had home games on on sports channel cable vision sports channel and away games on WOR channel 9. And they had two different sets of broadcasters. And so they wanted to combine it so there was only one set of broadcasters to make it better for the fans and so on. And so he said, would you think about it? And I said, yeah, that sounds like it might be fun. And they were very, very good about it. And so I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take the job for one year. And if I like doing it and you like me doing it, then we'll go on. If you don't like the way I do it, or I don't like doing it, then I'll go back to Boston. And so what, 20, 24 years later, I retired from that.
1: (laughs) Well, this one might be an offbeat one for you, but, and you can confirm whether or not it's true. Did you live in the Amityville Horror House at one point or down the street from it? (laughs) Yeah, very very good.
2: (laughs) I lived on the same side of the same street down at the end of it on the water. Yeah, I rented a house there. It was the most beautiful place from a friend of mine. um, guy named Wharton B. Allen. He had the Allen Insurance uh, Agency in in Amity. Uh, yeah, I guess part farming deal anyway, on the board. Anyway, he had this gorgeous home, three and a half acres with a barn and a boathouse and a 52-foot Hatteras, and I rented that. And and uh, yeah, and and we used to have to, when that when that tragedy happened, and of course, then they everybody thought that the house levitated and this and that. And I said the real the real horror house is down at the end where we are, <laughs> all these hockey guys. Anyway, the guy that lived next door was a Canadian. His name was Liebert, and uh, the Royal Canadians, the band that played New Year's Eve, Liebert was the brother. And of course, whenever we could get him out. We used to play pond hockey out on the Amityville River, which was right there at the back of the house. And uh, Guy Lombardo, it was Liebert and Lombardo uh, that lived next door to me. And when Guy Lombardo come into town with his band, he they all stayed at Liebert's house because he had a big house there too. Anyway... <laughs> Uh, I get all the guys that wanted to, I get them skates and sticks and we'd have a game of shinny and then we'd have some fun. They'd be playing over at my house and some of the guys would be over there and we'd have a a little uh, a little shakedown.
0: Well, as we talked about how different is with everybody wearing a helmet different than your day where there were plenty of players that didn't. One other thing is the fact that there were players in the NHL smoking in the locker rooms during intermission. <laughs> and how, I mean, looking yeah. back, isn't, doesn't that seem so crazy that during intermission guys could be just smoking away in the locker room and you go back out there after 15 to, to 17 minute break and, and get back on the ice.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, it was, you'd go into the dressing room between periods and all of the stalls. There was probably four of them and there'd be four guys sitting in there and uh, it looked like a General Motors factory chimney with all this smoke coming out. There was at least four guys smoking away. They sat in the in the bathroom doing it. But yeah, it yeah, it was a different world. I mean, we were talking about that the other night. It it doesn't seem that long ago for people my age that, you know, people smoked in restaurants and they got on airplanes and smoked and it was, you know, and and today it's like, you know, it's like, God, somebody smokes. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of players. Yep. Yeah, they, uh, let's see, Mike Bossy, Bobby Nystrom, J.P. Parisi. Yeah, there there were probably four or five guys that, that smoked. <laughs> yeah, they, <laughs> I got mad at Al Arbor because after I had retired and I was broadcasting, and then he would let them have beer in the dressing room after the game, I said, I'd have kept playing. <laughs> Just for that.
1: Uh, and then, Well, I mean, if we're talking about smoking on planes, I mean, it reminds me, you guys used to travel commercial. And we love getting the stories from the guys about traveling commercial. And I would assume a veteran of your stature was not sitting in a lot of middle seats once you arrived on the island.
2: <laughs> well, actually, they usually put the team in the back of the plane. And depending on how crowded, uh, they, they would leave the middle seats open. In a lot of cases. We 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 did have that luxury. And I thought it didn't matter to me because I remember when I started out we traveled by bus and train. There <laughs> were no airplanes. <laughs> I mean they had airplanes, but we didn't uh, we didn't have that luxury in my early brewing days. So getting uh getting on a plane and flying places, uh no chargers, that that came a little bit later. Yeah. Oh no, we used to have fun, yeah, it's, luggage would be coming and we'd be betting on whose luggage had come out first and i can remember once i went back in the door that the guys didn't know was there i i didn't know i went in and that's where the guys were taking the luggage they were taking it off putting it on the on the belt and so i got my my luggage and i got on the belt and I came through where the flappers are. I came through. I said, well, I win the bet. And of course, what I didn't realize was that I had a kind of a white overcoat, you know, like a raincoat. And, then, and I didn't realize that the whole back of it was black. <laughs> it said, you, you won the bet, but it's going to cost you more than you won to clean the coat. I said, "Why?" <laughs> yeah. So stupid things. But, you know, when grown men can still be kids.
0: You mentioned the train travel at the start of your NHL career. How long would it have taken to get from Boston to Chicago? Because that's pretty much as far as you could have gone, at least uh, from Boston in those days.
2: Yeah, that's what we would do. We would start out uh, normally and we'd go to, uh, we'd practice on, uh, like a Tuesday. Sometimes we got Monday off. If we didn't, but Tuesday after practice, we'd get on a, get on a train and, and go from Boston to Chicago. And, uh, and get in there, um, have a pregame meal, play Wednesday night in Chicago, get on a train, and go over to Ch- um, from Chicago to Detroit, play a game there, and then go from Detroit, sometimes come home, but sometimes we'd go to Toronto, play there, take a bus to Buffalo, get a train from Buffalo down to Boston, <laughs> or Montreal, whatever. It was like a big circuit. And and you played each other 14 times in those days, seven in each building. So that's where some wonderful rivalries really got started between players and teams. And uh, that was fun to watch.
0: I mean, I'm looking at the schedule from your rookie season with the Bruins, and there were back-to-backs in, let's see, the at the Rangers and then at the Red Wings. So going from Manhattan to Detroit, one night that would have been via train. What time did you get to the to Detroit the next day to play a game?
2: Yeah, you take the train, sure. Yeah. No, no, no. That was we used to take the bus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some of the game. Well, even down in New York, sometimes, depending on the schedule, we could we'd take a bus down. We called that the iron long, the train or the bus. We were riding the iron long. Yeah, those uh we did a lot of we had Sunday night. Celtics would play Sunday afternoon. They would put down the bull gang, would put down the cover over the, uh, over the ice and we'd play or take it off, excuse me, oppositely. And we'd play Sunday night. So we had a lot of those double headers were Montreal. We'd be on the same train. They'd be in one car. We'd be in another. We did that with Toronto, Montreal. And yeah, because Wednesdays was ranger night and sometimes thursday is at ours so we would do the same thing so (laughs) different world i've seen a charter go from i went to get my plane one day and i see this big 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 jet sitting there and the manager of the airport said uh, oh that's the islanders charter And i said charter i said they're going they're playing tonight an exhibition game in philadelphia (laughs) he said that's their charter I waited and here's the kids getting on jackets and ties of course with Lou short haircuts no facial hair and I look and I said but to Philadelphia (laughs) but by by the time that guy gets the engine started up you could be driving in a bus you'd be there by the time that plane got there (laughs) but yeah they do they it's wonderful the way the the players are are handled and treated and yeah it's it's different it's different i lou said lou lamorello said to me one day ed meet me over at my office at the practice rank i said okay so i went over and he said you know you probably don't know what players do on the day of a practice i said no not really so he showed me like they had a a cafeteria and he said well the players will come in here if the practice is at 10 Players will come in at, you know, say at 8, 8.30, and they have, we have two chefs, and they cook them this wonderful breakfast, healthy, obviously, and then they'll go, and they'll do their stretching, or watch some game films, and they, da-da-da-da, they'll out on the ice, and they'll practice for whatever length of time the coach wants them practicing, they'll come in, they'll shower, change, and they'll have a wonderful lunch served to them, (laughs) before they leave I said hey Lou you see that corner over there he said yeah what about it I said I'm going to pitch pitch a tent over there I'm going to live here (laughs) just think how long I'll live (laughs) so yeah all everything is uh is wonderful the way uh the way it's uh it's handled today and the players and yeah we I'll be uh, leaving tomorrow morning I'll be going up to see all of my old bruin buddies they're having the big bad bruin weekend this is the 100th year of the boston bruins and and they chose they chose the 100 best players in the 100 years and and, and luckily i i got to be picked as one of them but anyway they're celebrating this coming weekend uh big bad bruin uh, celebration and so we'll get together with you know with whoever's still left and tell each other how great we used to be. But the point I was gonna make is about how wonderful that players have it in, in, in their world today. Um, I was talking with Derek Sanderson and Bobby Orr, uh, I don't know, back last summer. And I said, you probably don't realize it, but um, if you took the 20 players on our team that won two Stanley Cups and put all of our salaries together, it didn't add up to a million dollars. The average player today makes two and a half million. <laughs> that's how far it's come. I just couldn't couldn't be happier for them.
1: Well, that's a tremendous honor. The, the Bruins are bestowing on you as part of the 100 greatest players in team history. And, you know, you've also gained a, another honor recently on Long Island as a Beconic Hockey Foundation is dedicating a new rink in Riverhead to Ed Westfall I'm going to be naming the rink after you. So, you know, just what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Getting that honor oh, from a Long Island well, rink and just having it named after you?
2: Yeah, Troy and Karen Albert, they spearheaded this whole thing. A lot of us are just doing our best to contribute whatever we could emotionally with our time, with our pennies. And uh, they finally got enough to, they're going to have two complexes, one covered and the other open. And the guy that, was probably more exciting than anybody else because he he he's just that way as John Ledecky. He never missed, every year he's there. And he and another really good friend of mine, uh, Tom O'Brien, who I worked in the banking world with forever. Anyway, they would be there and they'd have auction items and they had a great auctioneer. And these two guys, they buy everything. I said, you guys are nuts. What are you doing? (laughs) And and so when it come down to the... I don't know this verbatim, or I don't know it absolutely, but I think the New York Islanders and led by John Ledecky uh, were very, very instrumental in in the fact that the complex is going to be
1: called the Ed Westfall Arena. Well, actually, Ed, before we let you go, can I ask you one more question just on the rink? I mean, you told us how the rink came about, but you know, what does it mean to you to have a rink named after you, right? It's a pretty oh, high hockey. honor for a hockey player.
2: If you want to see a, a grown man cry in front of an audience, uh, that's it. Uh, when when they told me uh, at our last gathering in September out at the Savonic Golf Club, which has been fabulous, um, Mike Pascucci, um, and and his staff, and of course, um, Troy Albert. He's the general manager and runs it. But to have something like that, it does. I'll choke up now because you, you, those are things that you never think about, you never dream about. You just, you know, you're always part of things. When that happens to another person, you just think that that's that's wonderful. They deserve the recognition, and 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 that's why I always thank God. I I, I don't. I never think that I've done that much on Long Island to have a rink complex named after me so it's very emotional there's there's no way to train for that so uh um yeah that's uh yeah that's really really emotional and very neat my family uh, yeah some of them uh, in Canada some New Hampshire some Florida they're all going to do their best but yeah, uh, that's when people like me say, you know, when you think of your family and, and your mom and dad kind of thing who took you to the rink and did all the sacrifices, you know, and you hear it from everybody, but it's true. And you say you only wish that, you know, that they could see how this all came together and they're a part of it. But um, But memory wise, you always have that and your family will always have it.
0: And it has been a tremendous honor to get the chance to chat with you over the course of the last hour. Thank you for all the <laughs> stories and we know the Isler fans and even some Bruins fans might be listening in as well. We'll love to hear it. Well, thank you again for joining us on another edition of Talking Isles. Please make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you might listen. You can follow us on Twitter. I am at Greg Picker here. And I am at RightSway. You can follow all the latest info about the team on Twitter at NY Islanders and stay up to date on UBS Arena at UBSArena.com. A big thank you to our producer, Rachel Lusher and to WRAQ at Hofstra University. And we'll see you next time on Talkin' Isles.